We return now to our exposition of 1 Samuel to find David in exile in the cave of Adullam. This is the 46th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 22. 1 Samuel in chapter 22, the first five verses, the first five verses of Samuel chapter 22. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them and there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Misbe of Moab and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, Matthew chapter 10, 24 through 28, by the same spirit, Matthew records this, the Lord speaking, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now we left David and Jonathan last time, bidding each other a very heart-wrenching farewell as a result of Saul's insistence upon David's assassination. And in verse 42 of chapter 20, Jonathan blesses David with a benediction of peace, with the caveat of generationalism. Notice 1 Samuel 20, 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. So Jonathan bids him peace, and as a caveat, that there would be a a generational blessedness, a camaraderie between David's generation and Jonathan's generation. And as we have already pointed out, this was a rather ironic benediction. This benediction of peace was rather ironic, but there would not be peace for David, especially in light of Saul's declaration of war against him. And yet, it would be peace between David and God because God would be protecting him. And so David departs into his humiliation, into his humiliating exile to find refuge, initially finding refuge as he is also seeking provisions in the house of the priest Ahimelech. 
Now it was at that time, if you remember, in the house of the priest that Doeg, the wicked Edomite, the chief captain of Saul's military guard was there. Perhaps he was fulfilling some oath that he needed to fulfill. Whatever the reason, providentially, Doeg was there in the house of Ahimelech. As God would have it, observing the entire interaction between Ahimelech and David, and of course, being Saul's captain of his guard, he would then, of course, make haste to tell King Saul of the event. Sensing the danger, David departs, and he goes into exile, into the land of the Philistines, to the king of Gath, in hope that the king of Gath, among the Philistines, would be his protection. He would be protected from murder of Saul, because Saul wouldn't be looking for him in the camp of the Philistines, of course, because David was that great giant killer, and the Philistines would not embrace him, so Saul would not seek to find him there. This is a very cunning move. So, David goes to Gath, and he pretends to be insane. And pretending to be insane, he is, for a season at least, able to remain in Gath until he is forced to journey to the cave of Adullam. Because Achash, he was more than a little bit concerned that this madman was in his house. He said, I I can't abide by this madman anymore. Uh, he, He has to leave. So David has to leave. Which brings us to chapter 22. And we now find the refugee David in the cave of Adullam. And it is here where David is now officially in exile, being hunted by the king of Israel, Saul, the murderous tyrant. So hearing of David's exile in the place where he is hiding, his brethren, notice how, how interestingly enough, the news goes a- abroad. Oh, David, now he's in Adullam. And hearing of this news, his brethren and the entirety of his father's house comes to his aid. Note how David, by this act of his brothers and his household, is truly loved. He's truly loved by his brethren. In order for them to venture into standing alongside of David, putting their own lives at risk against King Saul, this is a very incredible action by these men. Notice, David therefore departed, verse 1, chapter 22, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house, the entire assembly of his father's house, heard it, they immediately went down to him. This is very heartwarming. Seeing David's distress, his brothers, who had once mocked him, if you remember, they once mocked him and chided him when he came before the giant of Gath. Now... And in completely change of heart, they, they come to his aid. And these were the same men that were fearful. Remember how they feared the giant. They feared the, the Philistines. These Israelites, they were afraid. They were like little children quaking in their boots. But now, these same fearful men who were in the service of Saul's army at that time when the giant threatened, now, in the face of Saul's wrath, they show not only care for young David, but courage against Saul. A transformation of of attitude. But this is what brothers do. This is what the brethren does. They go out of their way to aid a brother or a sister in need without any concern for themselves because of the danger. Or in our modern day, without any concern for the inconvenience that it might bring. They see a need, 
They see the distress of their brother or their sister and immediately they attend to that individual in need. Noting the danger, which was quite obvious. Anyone that confederated with David in Saul's mind was a traitor. But noting the danger, David's brothers and his entire household weighs their actions. They weighed their actions very carefully first. Notice, they knew that they were committing treason against the king which had a death penalty attached to it. Obviously, they didn't care. They didn't care because they knew the difference between right and wrong. They knew that Saul was wrong. They knew that Saul was a tyrant. And the only way that they could know that, the only way they could know the difference between right and wrong, the only way they could discern the difference between right and wrong was because they knew what God had commanded in His law. And tyranny and oppression and murder was wrong. The civil magistrate was to speak righteousness. He was to declare what was right and good. And they understood that that wasn't Saul. Secondly, they had to have been privy to the fact that Saul had actually begun to lose his mind. It's interesting to me that in a day where there's no internet, no postal service, no telephone, no walkie-talkies, no, no communication, that these things got out so readily. The news was uh, out there that David had gone to the priest's house, that David had gone to Adullam, that, that Saul knew where he was, that the, the brothers knew that where, where David was. The news was getting out there. So the news that Saul was out of his mind was on everyone's lips. He was no longer functioning rationally, let alone biblically. And it was therefore their duty, David's whole entire household, it was their duty and their obligation before God, not only to support David, but to confederate with him. To stand alongside him and say, we will fight with you, David. Because David had shown himself honorable and worthy of God's blessing. Thirdly, they also most likely finally understood the ramifications of Samuel's anointing and that David was actually going to be the true king of Israel and, and, and Saul was not. The problem here is that if David's brothers heard of David's hideout, so too did Saul. News was getting out there like wildfire. Now, up until this time, David was on the run all by himself, all alone. But now, not only did his brothers seek him out, which is proper, the family should stand alongside the family, brothers should stand alongside brothers, sisters and sisters, the brethren should stand alongside, but not only did his brothers, his blood seek him out, others did also. Now note the list of these patriots. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone, here's the list, that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, they all gathered themselves unto David, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. 400 people. A ragtag group of men. Some in debt, some in distress, some discontented, frustrated. They gathered together, and they made David the captain. 
while his brothers once had followed Saul, now they sought after David. Their allegiances had changed. Remember, God recounted that David's brothers had followed Saul during the taunting of the giant. But now they had reversed their allegiances. They had reversed their devotions. They had reversed their dedications. And they have followed David wholeheartedly. Because once they made that transition, there was no turning back. Now this reversal also signified a reversal in worldviews, which has gospel significance. Whenever the elect of God, by the moving of the Spirit upon them, recognize Christ as the true anointed one, as David was recognized as the true anointed one, and recognize Christ as the victor, as David would eventually be the victor, over all manner of tyranny and giants and wicked men, once the Spirit moves in an individual, there's a transformation of allegiances. They, they switch allegiances from the Adamic nature to the Christian nature, from Adam to Christ, from the natural to the supernatural. And this transference of allegiances only happens by God's intervention upon a soul. Only by the grace of God, in other words, are our minds changed. You see, the brothers and all of these men that were now gathering to David, they had a change of mind. Their minds were changed. And as a result of our allegiances changing, we go from darkness into the glorious light of the truth of God's word, just like David's men did. They went from the darkness of following Saul to the light of following David. Now by David's fidelity in the face of great danger, he had proven two things. First, he was God's man. The anointing of Samuel was legitimate. He had proven by his actions, by his faith, that he was God's man. By his fidelity, secondly, he had proven Saul a coward and a man not worthy to be the captain of the Lord's army. From having no army with him, initially, now David had an army of 400 men. And that was a great encouragement to his mission before God. And it is here where we see a threefold lesson. First, the historical. The Israelites, under the oppression of Saul, are divided into two groups. This is usually the case with nations. You have on the one side those loyal to the wicked king or in our modern day a wicked governor, a wicked president. Even though he might be a wicked tyrant, people just tend to gravitate toward those wicked people. And on the other hand, you have those that are fighting against the wickedness, fighting against the tyranny for the liberation of their families and for the freedom of the land that they love. And this is a historical situation which was not at all unique to Israel because you'll find this division in every nation. Here in America, there is the division between political parties and national allegiances, between Christians and non-Christians, lawful constitutionalists and lawless libertines, Republicans and Democrats, and then you have the division of the races and the sexes. So you're always going to have two sides. You're always going to have a division of some sort. One group is loyal to the tyrant, to the concept of tyranny, Marxism, communism, socialism, libertinism, while the other is loyal to the liberation group of freedom and decency. 
This is common within the annals of history. You're always going to have these two factions. So first is the historical. Second is the practical. Whenever there is the threat of tyranny or any kind of political or governmental chaos, sides must be chosen. There has to be a choice made. You cannot live in the void. Moses had thrown down the gauntlet. He threw down that gauntlet when he asked Israel in Exodus 32:26, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Notice, he's calling them out to make a choice. Will you side with the tyrant or will you side with the liberator? Will you side with Adam and his fleshly nature or will you side with Christ and his empowering spirit? So there's always a choice to be made. David's brothers and all those that were distressed and debt discontented chose to be on David's side and their choosing was deliberate. They made a conscientious choice. I will. I will choose this or I will choose that. It was a deliberate choice. And once they chose that side, there was no going back. Once the side was chosen, those brothers couldn't go back. Once you choose for Christ, there's no going back. And there's no sitting on the fence either. You can't say, well, on Sunday I'll be a Christian, on Monday I need my flesh to be stroked. I need to follow my own desires. There's no going back. Once you choose for Christ, there's no going back. No vacillation, no doubting or being double-minded. We must be determined. David's brethren was determined. These men were determined, 400 of them, determined to follow David. No vacillating, no doubting, no no second-guessing of themselves. And the only way to know without any hesitation which side we should be on is to have a working knowledge of what is right as opposed to what is wrong. And the only way we can have an absolute and reliable standard of what is right and wrong is by the Holy Word of God. And this is why we must be bathed in that Word. So we ask ourselves the question, are we bathing ourselves in the Word of God? Are we reading the Word of God? Are we meditating upon the Word of God? Are we reading the Word of God to our children? Are we making the Word of God part of our everyday thinking, our everyday life? That is the only way we can then discern between right and wrong. Because the scripture alone is unchangeable and it alone is reliable. It alone is righteous, just and equitable. And to have a working knowledge of that is absolutely essential for us to make the right choices. Joshua once said to the wavering Israelites who were vacillating between the gods of the Canaanites and the God of creation, he said, choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day. You must choose this day whom you will serve. He was telling them two things. They had to choose. Now, of course, he wasn't saying that they could choose God because they already chose the gods of the Canaanites. But what he was saying to them is that they could not remain in the middle. They could not waver. They could not vacillate. They couldn't sit on the fence of decision. They had to choose. Secondly, whoever they chose... They needed to know that they would then be their servants. You choose the flesh, you will be a servant to the flesh. You choose the Christ, you will be a servant to the Christ. 
So no matter what they chose, they would become servants to that one that they chose. To choose Saul meant that they would be servants to him. And he was wickedly unreliable, wickedly murderous. But to choose David meant that they would be servants to a righteous man who had been ordained by Samuel and who had shown the fruit of the Spirit from his actions because he was God's man and they could see it. The only reason why they could see it is because God had opened their eyes. And so, there could be no neutrality. No neutrality in allegiances. Sides had to be chosen. Then the third aspect, we have the historical, the practical, and the third aspect is the eschatological The eschatological aspect of the fact that David goes into a cave, the Adullam event. And I tell you this, brethren, herein is a beautiful gospel analogy. Remember, David is a great type or representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider this. David is hidden in the cave of Adullam, ready to be revealed as king of Israel, in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ is hidden in the cave of Joseph of Arimathea, for his burial, his, as I put it, his atonement exile, ready to be revealed at his resurrection as the king of nations. So David is hidden in the cave, ready to be revealed as the king of Israel in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ is hidden in the cave of Joseph of Arimathea for his burial, ready to be revealed as the king of nations when he comes out of the cave at the resurrection. So once David is in the cave, we read that 400 men are drawn to him. These men were of certain disposition, who found themselves, obviously, in in difficult situations in the same way as God's people find themselves in very difficult situations, some grave situations. But by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, they are drawn to the cave where our Lord was buried to be on the Lord's side. Observe the descriptions of these individuals. They were men, firstly, of distress. The word God uses here to describe a people who are in dire straits is translated here as they were in a narrow way. They were in dire straits. And this is the same idea found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Notice what Jesus says, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way. You are in, these, these are the dire straits of, of, the, of the way to salvation which leadeth unto life, and few be there that find it. Secondly, these were also men of debt. They had a great debt. And this too has a gospel significance. Historically, of course, these men were in economic difficulty. But soteriologically, this could refer to, and I believe it does, refer to their sin debt. This idea is found in the Lord's model prayer in Matthew 6.12. And forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. So you have those that were in distress, and those that were in debt. The next group, the third group, those that were in bitterness and had upon them a heavy burden. Those were in those who were men of difficulty. This finds its spiritual connection in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The men that are described here for us were men of difficulty, men in debt, men of distress. These men fled from Saul, even as the Christian flees from the Adamic man and the Adamic nature, in order to confederate with David in the cave, the Christ who is buried in the cave, atoning for our sins, who would give them rest from tyranny, the tyranny of sin, the tyranny of Saul. 
even as Christ gives his people rest from the tyranny of that sin, death, the wrath of God and the condemnation of the law. So herein we have a gospel reference. Note also these men gathered themselves together to enter into the cave with David, symbolizing how the people of God must be gathered together. Remember that idea of gathering the people together. As God is gathering his people, gathering his people together, gathering his sheep together. So these men are gathered together in the cave, symbolizing how the people of God must be gathered together by the Spirit so that they may enter into the cave, or put it this way, enter into his death. Because that's what the cave symbolizes, his death, his burial, in order to be raised in the newness of life. And that's what Paul tells us. Paul tells us that baptism is a symbol of being buried with Christ as much as it is a symbol of the washing away of our sins. But we cannot be washed until we have been brought into the fellowship with Christ's death. You see, we have to relate to the death of Christ. We have to go into the cave, the cave of Adullam, to be gathered together with Christ. Notice what Paul says to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism, wherein ye also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. This is what Jesus meant when he told the apostles in Matthew twenty twenty two. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. David's hiding is also a dramatic statement concerning the gospel. While David is hidden from Saul, notice, he is not hidden from these men. They were in the cave with him. They were face to face with David in the cave. So while David is hidden from Saul, he is not hidden from these men in the same way that Christ and his gospel is hidden from the wicked, but is not hidden from those whom God has called. Consider how the gospel is hid from the reprobate, but not from God's elect. 2 Corinthians 4.3 But if our gospel be hid, Paul says, it is hid to them that are lost. And so while David and these men were hidden for a season communing with David in the cave, being galvanized together, having chosen to be with David in the cave, on the run with David in the cave, they would ultimately be revealed as victors with David when he reveals himself and ascends out of the cave in the same way as the gospel is ultimately revealed by Christ and his church when he comes to that resurrection, which he has done and which he is now continuing to be victorious in the world throughout history. Notice what Mark says in Mark 4.22. For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was there anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. David would finally exit that cave as the king of Israel. Note the result of these men gathering together to David. And he became a captain over them. Now Jesus identifies him to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's army in Joshua 5. Verse 14, 
And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. The Hebrew writer confirms this. In Hebrews 2.10, For it became him, Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So David now is made their captain just as Christ is our captain. So this gathering brings into the control of David 400 ready men making the conscientious choice to follow David as we make the conscientious choice by the moving of the Spirit to follow Christ these 400 ready men who will stand with David against all forms of tyranny, all forms of oppression, all forms of doubt, everything that could come against them, they were ready to stand with David. But why 400? Why not 1,000? Why not 300? Why 400? What is the gospel, if there is any gospel significance, which I believe there is, of the number four? Well, God uses the number four to indicate the universality of something, as it is in the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, or the four winds of heaven. With the number 400, which is four times 100, God is using the number four as the number of universality and the number of 100 for completeness. So I believe that this is the the universal completeness of God's army, typified here, by these 400 men. By connecting these two numbers, God is symbolically stating that these 400 men represent the complete number of God's elect who are scattered throughout the four corners of the earth and who have committed themselves to Christ, represented by David, who have chosen by the Spirit's work to follow David no matter what. And so these men follow David into a cave, symbolizing death and symbolizing the grave. We follow Christ into the grave, we follow Christ into the death and burial, so that we might be partakers of His resurrection. And this is where we identified with our Savior in the most intimate fashion, in His death first, and then in His resurrection. So when David finally exits the cave, and is actually confirmed as king after the death of Saul, that represents Christ's victorious resurrection and His confirmation as king. It is at that time when the Davidic kingdom is established locally, representing the establishment of Christ's kingdom globally during the New Testament age. So there's this gospel signification. But then David does something else. David then goes to Mizpe of Moab and requests of the king of Moab to protect his mother and his father. Notice, his mind is not only on his own protection, He's thinking about his mother and his father. And this is telling us something about this man, David. An incredible character. He is not underestimating the wrath of Saul and the viciousness that he is capable of. He's concerned about his mother and his father. He knows that Saul, maybe to move David to come out of hiding and to give himself up, might even hunt down and slaughter David's father and mother. Saul was not to be trusted. Now, a number of things are significant here. A number of things are evident. David is an honorable man. Godly, obedient man. In that he is concerned for his father and his mother. Not only for himself, but he's thinking beyond himself. Selflessness. 
thinking beyond himself, knowing that he might, by his adversity to Saul and Saul's hatred against him, he might put his mother and father in danger. And so he begs for their protection. Secondly, David's parents, of course, at this time, they're well on in years. They're not able to defend themselves. His brothers are with him in the cave with the 400 men. And it's further interesting that this concern for the welfare of David's parents come from the youngest of the eight children, not the firstborn, where it should have been. The youngest is concerned. Here's a man after God's own heart. Here's a man who truly is thinking outside of himself. He comes to the aid of his parents as soon as he sees the need. He doesn't wait for his brothers or, or someone else to take responsibility. He takes action immediately. When he thinks about it, he gets it done. He's not hoping that maybe someone else will do it. Oh, maybe I should get someone else to do it. He doesn't dispatch anybody to do it. He does it himself. When he sees the need, he takes action. Because it is in his power to protect his parents. And therefore he does so without hesitation. And this is what the Apostle commands. James 4.17 Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. How many times do we see something that we should be doing, and we don't do it? How many times do we have the power to do something to help someone else, and we don't do it? Waiting for someone else to do it. It's sin. But David knew what he had to do. Not only did he know what he had to do, David took action, and he got it done. And that's the mark of a true leader. Thirdly, David uses his connections to broker this protection. He uses this connection with the Moabite king to protect his family. Now through the lineage of David's great-grandmother Ruth, David is connected to the Moabites. It's part of his lineage. Despite the fact that Israel and Moab were often at odds with one another, they now have a common enemy, Saul. And David capitalizes on it. Hey, King of Moab, we have a common enemy. Let's work together against that enemy. As an emergency tactic, David sends his mother and father to the King of Moab until he has a clear understanding of the will of God. Notice, he still is waiting on God. This is so important. Notice, verse 3. And David went thence to Misbe of Moab, and he said unto the King of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you until, this is important, until I know what God will do for me. Notice, David is still waiting on the Lord for every step of the way of his life. He doesn't see things way out in the distance. And he's not really concerned that he doesn't know what tomorrow holds. How many times that we we think about, well, if I knew what tomorrow hold, held, uh, and I, I'll be okay. No, 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 David didn't know. He was going to wait Notice again how David is waiting on God for an answer. So what did David know? Why was he so insistent upon waiting on God? Well, certainly he trusted that God would provide a clear answer as to what he should do in his difficulty. He also knew that if he ran ahead of God, he would be like Jonah, even though he didn't know Jonah at that time. But he knew that if he ran ahead of God, he would show himself unfaithful and ultimately be ashamed. This is why he wrote in Psalm 25, verse 3, Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. 
Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. David would not be shamed in moving ahead from God, in moving out and doing his own thing. He was waiting on the Lord, and this is so important. Consider David's many declarations on the importance of waiting on God. Because at this point, while he was in the cave of Adullam, he understood what waiting meant and how important it was, how critical it was to doing the right thing. And so in his songs of Zion, he sings about the waiting. Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. He didn't didn't just wait a little while and say, well, he didn't answer me, so I'm going to do what I think. No, I'm going to wait all day long just to find out what God has in my life. I want to know what God has. I'll wait all day. Psalm 25, 21. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice how important it was for David to wait. Psalm 37, 7, 37, 9, 37, 34. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Notice, wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Think he was thinking about Saul when he wrote that? I think so. For evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Psalm 52, 9. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, thine authority, for it is good before thy saints. He repeats this in Psalm 59, 9, Psalm 62, 5, Psalm 123, 2, 135, and 145, 15. Over and over and over, David says, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait until I have a clear answer. He understood, as the man of God that he was, he understood the importance of waiting on God for direction. In fact, he wouldn't do anything until he had a clear direction from the Word of God. This must be our practice, especially when we are in the darkness of despair, confusion, chaos, tyranny or sin, walking in the valley of the shadow of death, we have to be patient, praying always, waiting on the Lord for that direction. So many times I'm asked by my my parishioners, what are we going to do if, you know, there's that word, if, what if this happens, what if that happens? Well, that happening may never happen. But I'm still asked the question, what are we going to do if, And my answer is we are on a need-to-know basis as to what to do if. And at the time that we need to know what to do if, God will show us what to do if such and such a thing comes to pass. When we need to know what to do, we will know what to do. That just takes all the stress away. And this is Jesus' intention when he tells his disciples... In Mark 13, 11, But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. In other words, wait. Wait to see what you're going to say here. Wait to see what you're going to say there. Or just wait to see what God's going to show you what to do. Therefore, until we know exactly what to do, we wait. Now, 
do we prepare? Yeah, we do. We prepare while we wait. We prepare as David prepared secretly for his family while he waited. Notice, he was preparing the safety of his family. For his mom and dad, he was preparing their security while he waited to see what was next. Wonderfully, the king of Moab agrees and David is comforted knowing that his mother and father are safe. Verse 4. And he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. While he was in exile, he knew. He had a peace of mind. He knew mom and dad are okay. Mom and dad are safe. But David didn't have to wait very long for an answer. God answered him quite speedily. But he didn't answer him directly. He answered him through the prophet Gad. Through the prophet Gad, David receives his next series of marching orders. Verse 5, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold. Depart and get thee into the land of Judah. And David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. Now the reason for Gad's instruction is not known other than David's whereabouts might have been discovered by Saul. And obviously because Gad wanted to protect David, he wanted to protect the people that were with David, his instruction was, leave the cave. You might have been discovered by Saul and therefore it's no longer for you to remain safely in that cave. Now remember, the word was getting out like wildfire. Everyone knew where David was. They knew where, where this one was and what that one was doing. Doed was, was giving intel to Saul. So it wasn't safe at this point. Now God often sends his prophets to his people, instructing them on what they should do in a crisis situation. And that's the task of the pastors. That is the task of the pastors. The office of minister, the office of pastor, is to warn the congregation, their sheep, of the impending danger and what they should prepare in its wake. Whether the, the danger is, is social media or, or the sin that is so easily besetting them or the tyranny that's afoot, no matter what the danger is, it is the pastor's role to warn the people of God and prepare them for what's about to come forth. However, the pastors must stress the absolute necessity of waiting on God in faith to see exactly what they must do. In the case of tyranny or any other critical situation where danger exists, the people of God are to pray for cunning. Pray, pray, pray. I think if, if it's not stated in the scripture precisely, I guarantee you that throughout David's ordeal, he was a man of great, intense, agonizing prayer, of meditation, of recounting things, of, of, of going over and over in his mind, God's word, what did God say, thinking about what Samuel told him, thinking about the ordination, thinking about what Saul might be doing, praying to God over and over, secure my life, keep my life strong and, and, and secure so that I can do what you have called me to do. So here's a man who is waiting on the Lord, but while he is waiting on the Lord, he's praying intensively for God to guide him. Now depending on the circumstances and the intensity of any crisis, the people of God can respond in a number of ways. Number one, they can fight. Israel often met their enemies on the battlefield to fight against them. Once they knew that it was the will of God that they should fight, they did so. But if they didn't know whether or not it was God's will to fight, they waited. They waited to see if that was God's will. 
our answer comes to us when it is necessary for us to know certainly. Some people say to me, well, when, when will there be a revolution? Will there be a revolution? Should we fight? Well, we don't know. We know when we need to know. We may never know. We may never have to fight. But until then, we prepare. But we wait. Secondly, the people of God can hide like David was hiding. David wasn't fighting. He was hiding. David hid. Even Christ hid. Christ retired to a mountain to pray, hiding from the scribes and the Pharisees. We read this in John 8, 59. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There is time to hide. I'm sure that while he hid, he was in deep prayer, of course. Thirdly, people of God can just pass through the midst of the wicked. Luke 4, 28 and following. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill. This is Jesus being led to the, to the cliff whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Just skirted right through them in the chaos, in the confusion, in the blindness of their wrath. He just scooted right through them. This seems to indicate that Christ simply assimilated within the crowd and made himself to be so non-combative, blending himself in that he could avoid conflict and he just escaped. Sometimes we need to sidestep situations simply to avoid conflict. I know a lot of us, uh, a lot of when a lot of us who are younger, we don't we don't think about this option. We just want to go get them. We just want to fight them, argue them into submission. But sometimes we just need to sidestep the situation to avoid conflict and not to be taken off of our duties, our wall. This might mean that we keep our opinions to ourselves until the timing is right. And that takes discernment. When to hide, when to fight, when, when to pass through. Once again, in order to know what to do and when to do it, we need to be in constant communication with our God. Praying always. Taking counsel with God's people, with God's man. Understanding the prophet Gad's instruction as a word from the Lord, David immediately responds. He doesn't say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm comfortable here in, in the cave. I like hiding out. No, 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 no. Time for hiding is over. The prophet Gad is saying, you must leave, you must leave. David understood that this was a word from the Lord. And therefore, as the minister Gad, the prophet Gad, is instructing him to do this, that, or the other thing, David heeds that counsel. And he immediately responds and goes to the land of Judah and hides in the forest of Harith. I cannot tell you how many times, I cannot tell you how many times I'll counsel folks and then they come back to me with the same problems and I say to them, did you do what I said? They said, well, no, I really haven't done that. It's sort of like going to a doctor and the doctor says, listen, I have this medication for you. Take this in three days, you'll feel better. Fourth day, you come back to the doctor and say, doctor, I'm still sick. Doctor said, did you take the medication? He said, no, I didn't take it, but I'm still sick. It's, uh, what can I do? Take the medication. Take the counsel. Listen to the Word of God. How many times are we reading the Word of God and we're doing whatever we want? We read, then we, we forget what we're reading and then we go our own way. David responded immediately. Gad said, leave. He left. Gad said, go, leave, and go to Judah. He left and he went to Judah. But once there, amazing without the internet, without telephones, without, without social media, without newspapers. King Saul hears of David's whereabouts. 
And he begins his accusations against David once again in order to secure to himself followers in his narcissistic cause. We will consider that next when we return to examine Saul's murderous wrath against the people of God when we continue on our exposition of 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.